This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your front door. And by Jamie Lang, Ellen Gross, Mandy Booty, Chantel Oliver, Eric and Carolyn Shumway, Gary Stidham, Mary Seaver, Emily Kugler, and Mari B. Hedgecoth. Thank you for being our sponsors. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Today, I'm going to tell you about a storyteller. Hmm. And so I want to start out the episode with a kind of experiment in storytelling. Ooh. It's something I like to do with my students sometimes. And it's interactive for you and for our listeners. Mm. Imagine you meet a random person in the street or an alien or (laughs) someone who only has the most basic understanding of humanity. Okay. Okay. And they say to you, who are you? So what I want you to do in your mind is complete the sentence, I am blank. Mm. Do I like? Do I get lots of answers or just? It's like a sentence. Oh. They say, who are you? And you say, I am. Okay. So give it some thought. And listeners too, give it some thought. I'll give you, you know, 10, 20 seconds. Right. Hmm. I am a person who cares about things. Ah. I am a person who cares about people and things. <laughs> and so, oh, this is hard. Yeah. I am a person who cares about people and ideas. Interesting. That's the, that's the crucial information this alien needs to know. I, I hope so. I mean, I, I think it's me editing, right? This is what I want people to remember about me. <laughs> oh. I don't tell my students what we're looking for here. What I'm trying to do is like achieve a kind of psychological hack mm. or circumnavigate the conscious mind and figure out who do you think you are. Mm. So, so what it does, I think, is just help. Obviously, it's not purely scientific. But it helps us to understand what it is about ourselves that we have put at our core. Mm. So, like, yours is fascinatingly (sighs) universal. (laughs) Like, I am a person Mm. who cares about people. Mm. Like, (laughs) if you don't know you, that gives you no information whatsoever, (laughs) you know? Right. And there are so many other things you could have said. I am a feminist. I am a women's studies professor. Yeah. I am a redhead. Yeah, I maybe I wonder if a huge amount of the work that I do is about identity formation, is around mm-hmm. parsing out your identities. And right. So I wonder if all of that means that I am uncomfortable placing myself anywhere because I'm going to do, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who I am. Yeah. Someone else has to tell me. <laughs> Yeah, you zoomed all the way out. Yeah, because my list of standpoint theory identity intersections is 16 pages long. And that's really important, too. But well, and you know how you've said we've talked about this in the Viking episode. You can't narrow. Uh, You can't like choose. (laughs) I am a human. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Interesting. So maybe, maybe like you said, maybe you do have some work to do to like let yourself choose. Yeah. But I think that really that is my core value there is caring, oh, yeah, caring yeah. about things. Right. I, yeah. 
my answer changes too. Like each time I do this exercise with my students, kind of, you know, it depends on what my mood is and yeah. things like that. But it's always so interesting to see what their responses are. Mm. All kinds of different responses. And but in my mind, whatever word you say first after I am, whatever mm. you choose to put next, that seems like it's your core value. This mm. is what you've put at the very center. So yours was vaguely person. Person. Not even not even woman. So I love this fascinating illustration of how we all choose the key plot points in our life. Mm. We choose, we decide what to put in and what to leave out of our story. Mm. And the woman I want to tell you about today, she knew that deep in her soul. Mm. And that aspect of her life was probably especially on her radar because she was a storyteller. Hmm. Her name was May Timbimbu Perry. Oh, that's a great name. Yeah, it's an awesome name. She was a storyteller, a historian, memory keeper, hmm. so to speak, of the Shoshone Northwest tribe. But my guest today, Darren Perry. Okay, I'm Darren Perry, chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation. He just called her grandmother. Oh. <gasps> this was my grandmother. She was a beautiful tribal elder who loved and served her people. She was then and always will be my hero. Everyone has a story worthy of being told. She would often say to me, what is your story going to be? So Darren Perry spoke at a recent event at Weber State University hmm. where I teach. And he graciously allowed me to record his talk, and we chatted afterwards. And it's that recording that I'm pulling from today to tell you the story of a storyteller. <laughs> cool. What used to be called the Battle of Bear River, uh. through her lifetime of advocacy and speaking truth to power, <laughs> it's now known as the Bear River Massacre. Massacre, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the story of her people. But it isn't all grim, and it's not all anger either. Mm. May Timbimbu Perry lived quite a fascinating story. I'm Katie Nelson. I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. She was quiet and thoughtful. You could tell that she had an unbreakable spirit. You see, she was our storyteller, a calling that would one day become mine. She was our tribal historian. This title is important to Native American communities because it was the job of the tribal historian to carry on the traditions and the way of life. She was the keeper of the sacred things, histories that have been passed down for generations. And she set the record straight when it came to Native American history. I could talk for hours about her hands. Those hands that were always so soft in spite of years of beadwork and tanning. Those hands that spent many hours writing meticulously about her people, making sure that not one detail was ever missed. Her hands that knew the meaning of hard work because as an indigenous woman, and a woman of color, she had to work harder. She had dark skin with deep creases that told of a life lived hard, a life of giving, 
a life of loving and a life of caring. She always had homemade stew on the stove and fresh bread nearby. When I close my eyes, even today, I still smell it. As a child, I often wondered why it was there every day. I finally got the courage to ask her one time. She said, in our culture, you never have someone in your home without feeding them. But I said, Grandma, what if they're not hungry? And she told me that they were probably being polite. And you feed them anyway. <laughs> you see, my grandmother's people for hundreds of years were never more than a few days away from starvation. So this made sense. Meitim Bimbu was born in 1919 on the tail end of a very extreme time in American history. <laughs> Looking at her family history altogether, the trajectory of the Timbimbu family is amazing. Her grandfather was the chief when Civil War soldiers were rampaging across the West. Mm. And his showdown with them is grisly stuff. Mm. May's father spent his life assimilating to American ways as the American Indian Assimilation Program went into full swing mm. with things like the Dawes Act that said that indigenous people could own land only if they acted like civilized white people. Right. And May was born into that chapter of Native American history mm. in a small town called Washakie where the Northwest Shoshone were attempting to embrace a totally new lifestyle of sedentary farming. They had always been nomadic, <laughs> but there they were living in houses, setting up farms, sending kids to school, going to church, all the things that civilized Americans were mm -hmm. supposed to do. As a young girl, while most of the families that had moved to that Indian community called Washakie had very little food and often went without, my grandmother's family was different. Her parents knew the meaning of hard work and how to save for tough times. The Timbimbu family canned everything they could get their hands on. They had fruit trees and raised chickens. I've heard it said by other families that the Timbimbu family often provided food to other families in need. And at the local Washakie school, the kids were taught to shed their native identity and speak English, you know, right. integrate into civilized society. And there's one memory that, even years later, was still vivid in May Timbimbu's mind. Her teacher called her up in front of the class and made her stand on a chair in front of the students and said, May, you're going to turn out to be just like the rest of these children, sitting in the dirt and being useless for the rest of your life. I want to believe that this gave her an even greater incentive to succeed, not only in school, but in life. Now, that was the local school, but May's fate would take her elsewhere. 
because the federal government invited slash strong-armed Native American families uh. in sending their children to boarding schools. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, and at these boarding schools, they're going to learn how to be civilized Americans, mm. you know. This was a system designed to assimilate Native Americans into the Euro-American culture. Their creed was kill the Indian to save the child. And for May's family, the boarding school that they chose was in California. And these schools, it's a major part of our historical narrative now. Kids learn about it, and in hindsight, we can see the crazy, grim reality right. of such a program. If she spoke her language or referred to her people in any way, she was punished. This would ensure that the child would return home and continue that assimilation process. But my grandmother didn't do that. May Timbimbu is in charge of her own destiny. I wonder if, even in the 1920s, if she was asking herself, what will my story be? Hmm. Because reading her words, where she tells about this part of her life, I was completely shocked. She says she wasn't planning on going. She had just gone along to drop off her older sisters. She was about eight years old. But when they pulled up to the campus, tall trees, green grass, beautiful hmm. smelling blossoms, nothing like Washakie back home. Hmm. And she instantly wanted to stay. So she did. Wow. And she says she loved every day that she was there. <laughs> wow. She was in this pack of seven or so young girls who loved to make mischief like um, they were filming. So this is interesting because it's the 1920s, but they were a filming crew was at their school filming Ramona. Oh. And um, they turned the sprinklers onto the entire <laughs> filming crew and created like thousands of dollars worth of damage. Oh, I love her. Yeah. And she vividly remembered things like the smell of the soap that the wealthier girls from Oregon and Washington had wow. that they brought to the school. And she said she always just wanted to be around those girls because their soap smelled so magical. Oh, wow. <laughs> But also, uh, she said right at the start, she'd heard that kids who were on the honor roll got extra privileges. And so she said, well, I'm going to be on the honor roll then. <laughs> and she thrived at this Western style education. Hmm. And she loved it. So while she was away for three years, her grandma died. And the last thing her grandma had said to her before she left was, when you come back, you'll forget. You won't talk Indian, you won't walk Indian. Mm. Um, but as she was at boarding school, hearing that her grandma had died, she wanted the chance to tell her grandma, it's all right, I won't forget, I'm mm. still an Indian. So two of her friends who were sisters, they said, we can bring her back so you can visit her. Uh. Let's have a seance. <laughs> <laughs> so they snuck out at night with a Ouija board and they crawled into one of the window wells of the grand stone building and they lit candles <laughs> and nothing happened so one of the girls said somebody here doesn't believe <laughs> and may timbimbu in her recollection says i wasn't a believer but i wasn't going to admit it <laughs> right so i said this isn't a good ouija board 
And so <laughs> they took the Ouija board out and they beat the heck out of it, she said. <laughs> it's a technical problem. Wow. Yeah, she's the story of her life doesn't fit into any stereotypical narrative and she thrives at school and she loves it, but she wants to be able to tell her grandma, even though I love it here, that doesn't mean I'm not going to be an Indian anymore. That mm. doesn't mean I'll forget who I am and where I came from. Mm. And in fact, it's her education that is going to lead to her saving the stories of her people. Mm. There are certain times each day, even today, that I feel her presence. Sometimes when I'm at an elementary school teaching the fourth grade kids about my culture and traditions, I feel her presence and I hear her stories speak to me like they did in my youth. For May's father's generation, eighth grade was as high as you went if you were a Native American, but she kept going beyond that. And when she was about high school age, just before high school age, she came back to Washakie, where that same old teacher was at the local school. Mm. And when he heard that she wanted to go to high school, he said, no way. You'll never succeed. You'll be so far behind everybody else. The others will laugh at you. They'll make fun of you because you're at an eighth grade level. And May said, Mr. Harris, you've been saying that all along and it doesn't matter what you say. I'm going to high school. Wow. <laughs> wow. And I bet you can guess what happened in high school? She did well. She did. She thrived. <laughs> of course. She wasn't behind. She was ahead. Right. She was even invited to speak at graduation. Oh, cool. She was super nervous at the prospect, but a dear old childhood friend, Grant Perry, jumped in and said, you can do it. I'll help you. We can make this happen. And she would go on, years later, to marry Grant Perry. I was going to say, I recognize that name. Yes. <laughs> she had one high school teacher that was especially inspiring, a history teacher. Yay! Mm. And her experience in history must have been similar to the experiences, decades later, of Darren Perry. Mm. Where are the stories of my people? Yeah. It didn't take long for me to realize that none of the stories that my grandmother told me are in her history books. That was confusing to me. And then one day it became clear when I heard a quote attributed to Winston Churchill. He said that history is only written by the victors. Well, that makes perfect sense to me now. Why Native American histories and perspectives are never written the Shoshone didn't write things down. They were a oral culture. And May Timbimbu Perry was the inheritor of all of those oral histories. She was their books. At certain times of the day, she would call me and I would sit at her feet, just like she'd done with her grandparents, and listen to stories. For thousands of years, tribal elders would sit down with the young children and tell them stories. The stories were always the same. There was never a word out of place because it had to be that way. It had to be accurate. Our children needed to hear the stories as the elders had heard the stories from their fathers. 
If I was ever distracted or looked tired, she would quit. It was important to her that I understood all of the details. This was the only way that those important events would become memory and then be passed down to future generations. Every detail was important to her because it was something that was instilled in her by her grandfather because that is the way he learned from his grandfather. It was then and still is today the Indian way. While in high school, she started to do something that has literally changed our tribe forever. She began writing down all of the stories that she'd heard from her elders, and especially from her grandfather. It became her life's work to get the Shoshone stories out there, to be heard, to tell the federal government, you only have the perspectives of one small group of people here. <laughs> And the biggest event of all, the one that she said that they got most catastrophically wrong, was the Battle of Bear River. <laughs> and there's even a historical marker on the site, mm -hmm. placed by a, a local historical organization. But Meitimbimbu was the inheritor of these stories, passed mm -hmm. down to her by her grandfather, who was there. This was a massacre of her people by the U.S. Army stationed at Camp Douglas. The Bear River Massacre would become the largest massacre of Native Americans in the history of the United States, and it's largely been forgotten. Let's pause for a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. At Girls Can Crate, our mission is to inspire girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Every month, they deliver a fearless female role model to your door or to your inbox. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. I love their new digital subscriptions, which come straight to your inbox. It comes with a colorful, printable activity book. If it's a craft, they'll give you templates and instructions, printable worksheets, puzzles, art activities, and more. In addition to the digital subscriptions, if you're on a budget, they have mini mailers and then the full crates, which come out every month. Check them out. They are really amazing. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com and enter the code HERNAME, you'll get 20% off your first crate on any subscription. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com and make sure that you use the code HERNAME, all one word, so they know we sent you. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazil Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. Our history books today are full of stories written from that one perspective. And this has made me look at life differently. I find myself questioning what a different perspective might look like.
Every day of our lives, we have experiences that can be viewed differently by different people. This has always been so. We need to be able to view things from different perspectives. The Shoshone perspective wasn't being heard because in the Western tradition, you write things down. That's what makes them official. Right. And Meitimbimbu Perry knew that this perspective was on the verge of being lost forever. Mm. So May told the story. And she told it and told it and told it in schools, to reporters, to scholars, even in Washington, D.C. It seemed like every day at different times there would come a knock at the door. They were mostly graduate students who were working on their advanced degrees, but they also shared a love and commitment to sharing a history of a people whose voice had seldom been heard. Sometimes they were journalists who were pursuing their perfect story. Those individuals meant nothing to me as a young boy. But oh, how I'd love to go back and learn from them today. They are all giants to me now, as they were to my grandmother back then. My grandmother was smart. She knew that they would be able to help her tell this story of a people. She'd been to Washington, D.C. more times than I could count. There she met with senators and representatives. She served on the White House Council for Indian Affairs. So let's tell the story of the Bear River Massacre. I'd like to tell the Shoshone account first, and then afterwards, I'll read the text of the historical marker that the local society placed, Mm. which will give us an idea of how the story was being told. Yeah. It was winter in the Bear River. The site is two miles north of Preston, Idaho, along Highway 91, just as it crosses the Bear River. The Shoshones camped there for hundreds of years because of the hot springs that are along the river. You see, the winter was the elders' time, storytelling time. You had better have done your job in hunting and gathering the other months of the year so you didn't have to do much in the winter other than learn and hear stories from our elders. But over the previous year, 1862, so the Civil War was in full swing Hmm. in the East, some of the white settlers had reported some run-ins with a few Native Americans. Um, Mostly it was theft of horses or like theft of supplies. And there was an attack on some travelers in a part of the valley called Robber's Roost Hmm. that left at least one man dead. And headlines from the settlers' communities speak volumes. Mm -hmm. They say things like more Indian outrages (sighs) and more Indian murders things like that. One of the problems nobody was addressing was a cultural one. There were two very different approaches to living here. Mm -hmm. For thousands of years, our people had all things in common. Native Americans had no concept of personal property. Taking care of each other was always just a part of everyday life. But also, the Indians who were said to have committed these outrages were not members of the Northwest Shoshone. Mm. But to white settlers, an Indian was an Indian. It's all the same. Yep, no distinction necessary. So Meitimbimbu carried the story, 
And she told it to Darren Perry. And Darren Perry published it in a new book called The Bear River Massacre. Mm. And that's what I want to read from here. Chief Sagwich, being an early riser, got up as usual on the morning of January 29th, 1863. He left his teepee and stood outside, surveying the area around the camp. The hills to the east of the camp were covered with a steaming mist, which seemed to creep lower down the hill. Sagwich suddenly realized what was happening. The soldiers from Camp Douglas had arrived. The chief was not surprised. He started calling to the sleeping Indians, who woke and quickly gathered their bows and arrows, tomahawks, and a few rifles. Some of the Indians were so excited that they gathered up whatever was in sight to fight with. Some picked up their woven willow winnow pans and baskets and stuck their rifles through them. It appeared as though they had shields for protection. Chief Sagwitch shouted to his people not to shoot first. He thought that perhaps this military man would be a wise man and would ask for those responsible for the latest attacks on the white settlers whom Sagwich would turn over to the soldiers. He told his people to be brave and calm. Some of the Indians ran toward the river and dropped into the snow. They knew that they were not all guilty, but had no choice to fight for their lives if attacked. Some dropped into the children's play holes that had been dug along the riverbank. Without so much as asking the Indians for the guilty party, the colonel and his men began to fire on the Indians. Arrows were nothing compared to army rifles. Indian men, women, children, and babies were slaughtered like wild rabbits. Most of the violence took place along the river and among the willows. According to the Indians, the massacre started early in the morning and lasted until the early afternoon. The Bear River, frozen solid in the morning, was now starting to flow. The Shoshone people were jumping into the river and trying to escape by swimming across. The blazing white snow was brilliant red with blood. The willow trees that were used for protection were now bent down as if in defeat. The old dry leaves that had been clinging to the willows were flying through the air like whizzing bullets. Ray Diamond, a nephew of Chief Sagwich, was successful in his escape attempt. He swam across the river and found shelter away from the battle. He lived to be more than a hundred years old. He told and retold the story of the Bear River Massacre to the younger generations until the time he died. Many Indian women also jumped into the river and swam with their babies on their backs. Most of them died. One Indian woman named An Zi Chi was being chased by the soldiers. She jumped into the river and hid under an overhanging bank along with several other women. It was then that An Zi Chi's baby started crying. Fearing the baby would give their location, she chose to drown her own baby. By doing this, they were all saved. Another man swam with his buffalo robe on his back. The soldiers shot at him, but their bullets did not penetrate the thick buffalo hide. The soldiers first tried a frontal assault. The Shoshone shot and killed several soldiers and continued with such aggression that the army had to fall back. As the army regrouped and began to flank the encampment, the Indians, still alive, were calling to their chief to escape so that he would be saved. Chief Sagwich escaped with a wound in his hand after having two horses shot out from under him. Another Indian escaped by holding on to the tail of the horse Chief Sagwich rode across the Bear River. The cruelest killing was that of Chief Bear Hunter. 
It may have been the cruelest death in the entire struggle between whites and Indians. Knowing that he was one of the leaders, the soldiers shot Bear Hunter. They whipped him, kicked him, and tried several means of torture on him. Through all of this, the old chief did not utter a word, because crying was the sign of a coward. Because he would not cry out for mercy, the soldiers became very angry. One of the military men took his rifle, stepped to a burning campfire, and heated his bayonet until it was glowing red. He then ran the burning hot metal through the chief's head from ear to ear. Chief Bear Hunter went to his maker, a man of honor. He left a wife and many children behind. Jaeger Timbimbu, or Dabuzi, a son of Chief Sagwich, was about 12 years old, and he remembered the fight very well. He felt as if he were flying around. He dashed in and out among the whizzing bullets and was not hit. He heard cries of pain and saw death all around him. The little Indian boy kept running around until he came upon a grass teepee that was so full of people it was actually moving along the ground. Inside the grass hut, Dabuzi found his grandmother. She suggested they go outside and lie among the dead. She feared the soldiers were going to set the teepee on fire at any moment. The boy obeyed and pretended to be dead. Keep your eyes closed at all times, his grandmother whispered. Maybe in this way, our lives will be saved. Jaeger Timbimbu and his grandmother lay on the frozen battlefield for what seemed like hours. Toward the end of the day, the soldiers were moving among the Indians in search of wounded to put out of their misery. Jaeger, being a curious boy, wanted to watch. A soldier came up and saw that he was alive. The soldier stood over Jaeger, his gun pointed at the young boy's head, but the soldier did not pull the trigger. A second time, the soldier raised his rifle, and the little boy felt that his time to die was near, but again, the soldier lowered his gun. The soldier then raised his gun for a third and final time, but as before, he lowered his rifle and then walked away. Toward the evening, the field of massacre was silent, except for the cries from the wounded soldiers being carried away. The surviving Shoshone people watched as the wagons left the camp. Blood could be seen along the trail they had left. Have you ever had a memory sneak out of your eye and roll down your cheek? I have that all the time when I think about the history of my people. In 1932, so this is when May Timbimbu was 13, a local historical organization placed a historical marker on the site, and it's still there. It's this big kind of pyramid stone thing, and the plaque on it gives us a pretty good idea of how the event was being recorded in 1932. Mm. The plaque reads, Attacks by the Indians on the peaceful inhabitants in this vicinity led to the final battle here on January 29th, 1863. The conflict occurred in deep snow and bitter cold. Scores of wounded and frozen soldiers were taken from the battlefield to the Latter-day Saint community of Franklin, Idaho. Here, pioneer women, trained through trials and necessity of frontier living, accepted the responsibility of caring for the wounded until they could be removed to Camp Douglas, Utah. 
<sighs> Two Indian women and their children, found alive after the encounter, were given homes in Franklin. <laughs> wow. That's it. History is contested ground. Who owns the past? For centuries, non-Indians have monopolized the writing of Indian history, but not anymore. Our voices need to be heard. And it's not because we as Native American people are trying to have things made right, we're not. But I believe that all those who have gone before me have a God-given right to be heard. Their voices speak to me from the dust. For those that survived, it was the end of an era and the beginning of a completely different one. Mm. There were white Mormon settlers all around them, and they converted. Mm. Mass baptism, all of them. Now, some say it was because they were spiritually led. My academic friends say they were saving their butts. <laughs> and... That's, and, and I say it was probably both. And they began the long process of assimilation that would sort of culminate in May Timbimbu Perry. Hmm. Our tribe is unique in that we were one of the few tribes in the U.S. that does not have a reservation. And that's because they assimilated. They didn't want a reservation. Hmm. Um, and they still don't. They don't think the system works. May Timbimbu Perry wanted her people to have a voice, not a reservation. And so she spent her life advocating for a better America, one that heard all perspectives. Mm. The Northwest Shoshone achieved official recognition as a sovereign nation thanks to their modern efforts. But maybe the most poignant result of all of this was the recent purchase of the land where the massacre occurred. They just bought it. Oh, the Perrys did? Yeah, the tribe. Oh, cool. My grandmother would only dream of once again owning the land where her people passed away. But that dream came true. This is such a deeply personal journey for me. I felt her presence when I negotiated for the purchase of that sacred land just two years ago where more than 400 people died. It was so important to her that the story of her people be told from our perspective. Because of her and the stories that she told, we now have the opportunity to share them with the world. This sacred land must be preserved. How ironic that we had to purchase the land back from those who took it from us in the name of civilization so many years ago. Uh. May Timbimbu Perry and Darren Perry and maybe all marginalized people know that how you tell the story matters. And that isn't to say that there's one correct version of events. All historians know that. I mean, everybody knows that to some extent. You know, when you're an eyewitness to something and your account turns out to be totally different from another mm. eyewitness account. Right. There is there is no right way to tell the story. And mm. sometimes that is a 
painful truth, but it, it makes it all the more important to stop and think about what stories we are telling hmm. and why we are telling them this way or hmm. that way. Yeah, there's no right way to tell the story, but there are wrong ways to tell a story. <laughs> that plaque is a wrong way to tell that story. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, right. Exactly. Because it only has one perspective. Yeah. And so what we can do is look at the plaque and go, why did they tell it that way? Why yeah. did they choose those plot points? Yeah. What are they leaving <laughs> out? And so by consciously assessing our stories, we don't just accept them as true yeah. without exploring all the different perspectives. And Darren Perry has chosen to tell the story of the Bear River Massacre not as a tragedy of victimization alone. Hmm. He is consciously choosing his narrative. One of the most important statements that I can make as a Native American leader today is that we are still here. We've had a history that has contributed significantly to not just the United States, but to the world. You see, ours is a story of faith. It's a story of forgiveness. It's a story about a group of people who overcame great tragedy and loss. The massacre at Boa Olgai, which in Shoshone means Big River, was the largest massacre of Native Americans in the history of the U.S. by federal troops. If you learn nothing else, I want you to know that the Bear River Massacre does not define us as a people today. It has made us stronger. We have used those stories and tragedies to inspire and motivate us to be better people and a better nation. The arc of the Timbimbu's story is amazing, too, because from Chief Sagwich at Bear River, mm. down some generations to Darren Perry, some remarkable changes have happened. Darren Perry has recently announced he's running for Congress mm. in the district whose boundaries are on Shoshone land. Wow. The times, they are a-changing. <laughs> Good. There's an old Indian saying that says, when an old Indian dies, a library burns. And that was never as true as it was about my grandmother. She had a knack of making everyone feel welcome and loved. She would bring old stories to life that would capture any audience. I have learned over the years that People will always forget facts and figures about history, but they will never forget how they felt when they hear a story. This is what was different about my grandmother. She was a storyteller. I think in the most important ways, we're all storytellers. In instances great and small, you choose which people, which events, which plot points are the ones you're going to hang your narrative on. 
Mm. So you do that when you're writing a historical story? And you do that when you're creating your own life story? You're writing yourself. Yeah. Everyone has a story worthy of being told, she would often say to me. What is your story going to be? You choose which things you're going to leave out, what things you might just mention in passing or whatever. Mm. You know, you build your own story. And it doesn't all have to be sunbeams and rainbows, and it doesn't all have to be storms and despair. Mm. But when someone says, who are you? You get to answer, I am, mm. and choose the words that come next. Special thanks to Darren Perry and Sarah Langston at the Weber State University Library. You can find Darren's book, his campaign website, and May Timbimbu Perry's oral history on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Music for this episode was provided by the Northwest and Eastern Shoshone, Kevin McLeod, the Great North Sound Society, Roljui, Doug Maxwell and Media Right Productions, and Wayne Jones. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of additional content each week. We're so hugely thankful for all of our sponsors. You can become a sponsor for as little as a buck a month to help make more episodes happen. Just visit our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, and click on Donate. Thanks for donating. Thanks for listening. <laughs>